when we talk about walking a path of awareness, what we're talking about is learning how to be awake in whatever we're doing. And what that requires of us, this process of awakening, is learning the, the, developing the ability to bring fresh attention to whatever you're doing, to whatever's happening in the here and now. The fruit of paying attention, learning to pay attention to whatever you're doing, moment to moment, the fruit is that that begins to open the mind, open us up to other possibilities. When we're not paying attention, you know, when we take things for granted, or act very mechanically, habitually, there's not a lot of learning that happens. And on this path, what we're doing, what we're learning, what we're discovering, what we're uncovering, are really the most deep and profound truths that we can discover as human beings. You know, we're discovering the truth of uh, what causes us suffering? What's the nature of our suffering? How can we be free of suffering? We discover what the nature of this body is, what the nature of the mind is. You know, it's an exploration, an investigation. It's also about learning to live life fully. When we talk about meditation, that's really what we're talking about, is beginning to see life. It's a new approach to life. It's an approach which begins to see life as a whole. That's not H-O-L-E. W-H-O-L-E. Okay? As a whole. And what that means is that we begin to see and as practice matures, this happens quite naturally, we begin to see that whatever experience that we're having, you know, wherever we are, it's worthy of our attention. It's worthy of our full attention. That really is quite a fundamentally different way of living your life than the usual. You know, we have so many value judgments, so many ideas about what's worth our attention, what isn't. But to begin to see life as a whole means to begin to just pay attention to wherever you are. It's, it's learning to listen to the body from one moment to the next. It's learning to be aware of where your mind is. It's learning uh, how to connect to your environment, how to be sensitive to what's happening around you. It, from my perspective, and I'm sure Larry would fully agree, in fact, I know he does, uh, it's really the only way of living. And when you start this path, you really move into a place where living fragmented is seen as suffering. Seen, it's seen, seen as incomplete. In fact, at some point, you really can't imagine living fragmented. Like, why? Why not pay attention? Obviously, it's difficult to pay attention. And it's a training, and I'll say something about that in a minute. But it's obviously worth the training. We get to move into our lives in a more full way and we can begin to connect, you know, on a much deeper level to each other, to our environment, to our bodies, to our minds, to the activities that we're doing. Sometimes in this culture I think what living life fully means is that you pack it in. You, know, you do as much as possible. 
in the shortest period of time. And that's kind of seeing life as full. Or maybe you start doing what they call, I think, extreme sports or <laughs> ex extreme activities and that any sane person would be terrified of, like uh, <laughs> bungee jumping or hang gliding or you know, jumping off of cliffs and all sorts of crazy stuff. <laughs> and that scene is living life full. And so, so often you, when you interview these folks, they say, you know, I only feel alive when I'm doing this. <laughs> and that's a fragmented life, truly a fragmented life. Um, so we're doing something a little bit different. Uh, we're beginning to see that the ordinary activities, what we classify as ordinary activities, are really worth our attention. You know, so much learning. So much enlightenment can occur at any moment in time, in any place. Fortunately for us, there is a key to living life fully. And that key is within all of us. It's within all of us in this room right now. It's within all of the folks that we know or don't know. It's, it's really in all people. And that key is an inner quality. It's an innate quality. It's a form of intelligence that we were born with. And that somehow it's been covered up. We don't really have access to it too easily. Kind of have to work at getting access. But it's really a natural form of intelligence. It's not that complicated, really. We make it very complicated because we're not very mindful. But the form of intelligence I'm talking about, of course, is mindfulness. This ability to pay attention, you know, to know your experience from one moment to the next. In other words, to be attentive to the present moment. And that quality of attention, kind of intelligence that we're talking about, is really a wonderful and very powerful kind of intelligence because it's preconceptual. It doesn't know. It's simply open to what's there. It doesn't impose that value judgment of should or shouldn't, good or bad. It simply opens to what's there. It's a tremendously powerful form of intelligence because that, of course, is free. There's a lot of freedom in that openness. A lot of our thoughts constrict our experience. A lot of our thoughts are based on the past. And so it's very difficult often to open to the present in a fresh way. But that form of mindfulness is just that. It's fresh attention. One teacher described mindfulness as fresh air, opening the windows and letting fresh air in. So it's, it's connecting to your experience over and over again in a new way, not knowing, as though it was your first breath. And that's what mindfulness is. Sometimes when we begin to practice mindfulness, <clears throat> people sometimes report this in the groups and they have so far uh, in this retreat, there can be this feeling of self-consciousness or that there's this observer. Okay, that there's this observer. So, you're, so there's an observer watching the breath or an observer watching the walking happen. So, they think of mindfulness as just another form of kind of self-consciousness or creating distance from, from your experience. And at the beginning of practice, it does feel that way a lot. Like there's this observer, this comment, commentator, somebody sitting there 
uh, watching you do what you're doing. After a while, that begins to fade. That observer begins to dissolve. You begin to forget the observer. And then there's just the observing. There's just the openness. There's just the learning. And that's when we begin to talk about intimacy. Mindfulness is intimacy, as getting close to the experience, moving into the experience, getting to know it in a very open-hearted way. So what we're learning to do is how to relate to the present moment in a very fundamentally different way than what we're used to. But because we're asking ourselves a lot, we're talking about changing our lives. We're talking in many, many ways about changing our approach to life. And we can have the best intentions to do that. Really, the mind is deeply conditioned not to do what I'm talking about. It may sound very easy to do this, but it really isn't. And certainly after a couple of days of trying, you, know, you, can, you get a taste of some of the challenges that we face. And so we emphasize over and over again patience, and being gentle and kind. Because what we realize is that it's a training. It's a training. You have to earn the wakefulness. And that, that's unfortunate, I think, in a way, uh, that one has to work so hard um, to wake up. But that's just the way it is. And that's, of course, what we're working with is how things are. And so it, it does require a great deal of training the mind. The Buddha described, and I think this is a tremendous analogy uh, of sort of the nature of our minds as we begin to practice. He described the untrained mind as a wild monkey. And this wild monkey is swinging from one branch to the next branch to the next branch to the next tree to the next tree to the next tree the next year. Never really stopping. Nervous, agitated, dull, just swinging away. Okay? When we begin to take a look at our minds, that to me is a very good description of the thought process. When we begin to try to concentrate and settle the mind down, what we encounter is going from one thought to the next thought, and some of them are linked, you know, but before you know it, and then you start thinking about something, and then you're off somewhere else, and you're off somewhere else, and then you're off somewhere else. And the breath is miles, if not tens of thousands of miles away by then. Okay? That's the untrained mind. That's the scattered mind. That's the mind that's conditioned to be very preoccupied in the world of thinking. Seeing this, process, waking up. Remember, we're, we're beginning to wake up. When we begin to notice the fact that the mind is doing that, when we, that this waking up process, it's, it's really an insight, actually, to begin. You know, this is insight meditation. Uh, and believe it or not, one of the main insights that we have uh, on the path, one of the first insights that we have is just the fact that, we're, that the mind is operating in that way. And that the fact is, the mind is really out of our control a lot of times. You know, that, that the mind is just moving uh, very rapidly, very in some ways often very chaotically. And it's important to begin to see that. You know, sometimes it's discouraging. I know 
that early in one's practice, when one comes, especially when one comes on retreat, um, it's, it can be very hard and discouraging and disheartening to see the mind just not going along with all your effort or all your uh, best intentions. Um, but that's, of course, uh, why we need to be patient. Because what we're learning to do, learning to even what we're learning to do is to relate to that monkey in a very different way. You know, I was sitting in the 615 sitting and I was allowing myself to think. Uh, and I was thinking about this monkey. And I kind of got carried away. Um, because it's a great analogy. Because when I think about relating to the kind of wild, distracted mind, that's the wild monkey, or that's the untrained mind, it, the analogy of the monkey really makes a lot of sense. And also, in terms of training the monkey, in terms of, of helping the monkey settle down, how would you do that? Let's just think about we're working with this monkey. We want this monkey to settle on one branch. Well, if we started speaking to it and yelling at it, right, like, settle down, you know, don't give me any guff, you know, settle down, this is what you're supposed to do, this is what you should be doing, you shouldn't be doing that. We speak to the monkey that way. The monkey is not going to settle down. It's going to get more anxious, more agitated, and, and start swinging away from you, right? Okay. So, what would be a more helpful way would be to be gentle and to make friends with that monkey. Okay. Not make an enemy of that monkey. Okay. Make friends and build trust with that monkey, and get to know it. Be more allowing and accepting of the monkey nature. Be patient. And that's exactly what we need to cultivate in practice, is this patience. Letting the monkey settle on its own accord. Eventually, the monkey gets tired, believe it or not. The monkey will begin to settle down. But what will help it settle down is if we're allowing, if we're also persevering at the same time. We're allowing the monkey to have its nature, that it's in the state of thinking and chaotic, but we're also persevering. We're also saying, look, it's worth staying on the breath. It's worth settling down. So I'm going to keep coming back to that every time I notice the swinging. You know, and it's that perseverance that you need. You can't be indulgent. You, know, you need to make that choice over and over again. And it's a hard choice to make sometimes because of the power of thought. But you want to make that choice because in the long run, it's a wonderful investment to make. It's really the path towards waking up. It's this choosing to come back to the present. And right now, what we mean by that in the phase of this particular retreat is to begin to pay attention to the breathing. You know, in other words, really anchor your attention within the body-breath experience. That's our way of settling things down. That's a way of quieting the monkey down a bit. When we begin to wake up, not only do we wake up to things, but we also begin to let go of a lot of things that bring us suffering. And certainly one of the areas when we begin to relate to the present moment, you know, when we begin to open to the present moment, when we begin to take refuge in being awake and aware of the present moment, what we begin to let go of, one thing anyways, is this burden of having expectations 
placing expectations on our experience. We begin to let go of the burden of the need to have an agenda. And it's very hard to ar uh, arrive at a retreat without some expectations. And sometimes people, once in a while, maybe one out of every 10 or 15 people that report to me, tell me, you know, I came to this retreat without any expectations at all. And I always think, wow, that's great. Uh, but that's rare. You know, a lot of times we come with expectations. Uh, we come with an agenda that if you're an old student, the agenda is you know it's going to be hard the first couple of days, but then after that, your mind should settle down and get pretty quiet. And then, you know, who knows, but I, my practice will probably deepen. I hope it does. And so you kind of come to retreat with that notion of hoping that your practice will deepen. Well, that's kind of a subtle agenda. You know, that kind of closes the mind down. That's the problem with having expectations or having an agenda. It closes the mind down to learning. We get on a program and we have certain expectations. The way those expectations surface or arise is with a couple of different voices. When you hear this voice, it's really a, it's, it's telling you something. And the, and a, the two most common voices that we, we can hear often on retreat when we're doing meditation is should and shouldn't. Okay? I should by now have more concentration. That, that is such an incredible should. I hear that endlessly from people. People think, everybody thinks that after two days, they should have a pretty high degree of concentration by now. That's often, quite frankly, not just an expectation, it's often an unrealistic expectation. You know, we're, if we're living with this wild monkey most of our lives, we're just coming to a retreat and kind of cutting off from your everyday life and sitting down and thinking the mind is going to get focused just like that. It's unusual. Sometimes it does happen. Sometimes concentration does come quickly. It's very important, though, to realize that concentration is only one aspect of the path. It's one of the seven factors of enlightenment. It's one of the seven factors of enlightenment. There are many other factors. There are many other qualities that we can cultivate even when the mind is not concentrated. And one of the most useful things that we can cultivate is loving kindness towards ourselves when the mind is scattered in suffering. Patience, extremely useful quality, not just on retreat, but in everyday life too. Lots of kindness to yourself, kindness to other people. Those are the qualities that we can cultivate when we're facing difficulties. So this idea of should be more concentrated. There should be more insight. I should be having insights by now. Okay? That should. Okay? I should be having insight. I shouldn't be having as much sleepiness. That's for sure. I shouldn't be as sleepy as this. I shouldn't have as much pain or tension in my body. Okay? So there's a lot of shoulds and shouldn'ts about our internal world you know, that operate. And they get in the way. They create a lot of suffering. They constrict the mind. You can't get rid of the shoulds or shouldn'ts. They're going to come up. They come up in everybody's practice. But you want to work with those shoulds or shouldn'ts skillfully. And one way of working with them, the way we encourage it, is to be mindful of the shoulds and shouldn'ts. Be mindful of that thought, I should be more concentrated. 
Just be aware that you're doing that. See what you're placing on top of your experience. Things are the way they are, and they always are the way they are. But we have a lot of ideas about how they should be, and those ideas get in the way. They get in the way. But that's the internal shoulds, shouldn'ts towards ourselves, our own minds. There are also a lot of shoulds and shouldn'ts that get focused outward. Okay, we can sort of say what we should or shouldn't be experiencing inside, but we also look at our environment, uh, and, we, and we get caught up in a lot of shoulds and shouldn'ts then. And that creates a lot of suffering in the mind, a lot of suffering in the mind. And you can really see that suffering on retreat a lot. A few years ago, I'm not sure if I was teaching with Larry and Ryan, but um, arrived in retreat, started on the weekend, like this probably a Saturday, and going you know pretty smoothly. It was a couple, couple days into the retreat, and then I think it was Monday morning, which would have been this morning is Monday. All of a sudden, we started hearing this incredible racket of banging. I mean, really, really loud banging in the meditation hall. It was coming from upstairs. And it was tremendously loud and constant. Just this smashing away of what turned out to be hammers. And it turned out that these contractors showed up Nobody even expected them to come, but they showed up. Contractors are oftentimes, no offense to contractors out there, but <laughs> they can be somewhat unpredictable in their nature, let's say. They have their own agenda, <laughs> definitely have their own agenda, and they fit you into it. Uh, and they showed up, and what they were doing was they undertook this huge project of replacing all the windows in the main building. Okay? That's a big job. That requires them to rip out all the old windows, reframe the old windows, replace the windows. And it, it's like, for, the, for this main building, it was like a three-day job. And it was tremendously loud. I mean, this, it was like they were tearing the building down. That's really what it sounded like. And I'm teaching this course. And you know, people come to the city, from the city to the country for quiet. And so do I, you know? I mean, I come and I think it's going to be a quiet retreat center, at least, pretty quiet. And uh, Monday morning, it starts banging away, and it keeps going, and it keeps going. And, and what do you think came up for me? This shouldn't be going on. What are they doing? This should not be happening. You know, and I, and I could see this reactivity going on in my mind, and I was looking around for maintenance people to explain to me why these guys were doing what they were doing. and and. You know, I was getting caught up, but I was also trying to be mindful of my shoulds. Um, and, you know, eventually I found that these carpenters were here and they were going to have to finish their job. And, you know, what we were working with on that retreat first for those couple of days was working with sound, quite frankly. And, and there were times where we would do sound meditation and, you know, try to make it a little more entertaining. Um, but, you know, there were a lot of irritated people. Uh, there were a lot of lot more agitation and a lot of judgments and a lot of reactivity around that, and you know. But within a two or three days, they were gone, and it was silent again. And what we saw, and what I saw in that, is that life is unpredictable. Conditions are always changing. You know, we want conditions. We expect conditions to be a certain way, and it it, it, it life doesn't unfold that way. 
You know, retreats don't unfold the way we think they should. Retreat centers don't run the way necessarily we think they should. Life isn't that way. And so we, are we going to suffer because of that? Or is there a way of being in that situation without suffering? It's what we call, in the direction that this practice goes in, unconditional freedom. In other words, when your freedom doesn't depend on shoulds or shouldn'ts, but you can be with exactly what's happening in a completely open-hearted way. That's the direction that this practice goes. That's the fruit of this particular practice. It's not about learning how to create conditions so that we can be happy. It's not about, uh, in that sense, self-improvement or, or um, necessarily making your life uh, outwardly better or being uh, attached to accomplishments. But it, it's really about, it's much more of an inner process how to relate to life as it unfolds in an open-hearted way without being pushed around by it. So needless to say, my challenge was to let go of retreat centers shouldn't be this noisy. You know, and I've been in retreat centers that are, are, were just as noisy as that. And I didn't have the expectation in that, in, that, in, in that setting when I was in Asia. I didn't have that expectation, and I didn't suffer. What was causing me suffering and what was causing a lot of us suffering was that we didn't we didn't think that should be happening. In this context, we just didn't think it should be happening. But it was. Nobody was to blame. You know, we could sit here and blame everybody, but nobody was to blame. It was really just something to work with. We tend to blame external conditions a lot. You know, on retreats, we can focus on the food, the schedule, sleeping arrangements, temperature of the hall, the wind constantly howling. Uh, the bulletin board never changing. Uh, you know, you can constantly look at all these conditions and think that they should be better. But that just generates more swinging. It really does. It generates a lot more anxiety and suffering. So letting go of this constant evaluating, so often people come in and they report. And I know it's almost impossible not to. There are limits to language. But it's important to look at language sometimes. And, so often people say, well, I had a good sitting, one good sitting today, and the rest were bad. <laughs> I, and I think, forget it. <laughs> forget it. They were all fine. <laughs> you know, did you try to be mindful? Yeah, I did my best to be mindful. Well, that's a fine sitting. You know, don't call it a bad sitting. And, you know, if you have a peaceful sitting or a quiet sitting, <clears throat> have it, enjoy it, and let it go. Let it go. You know, let that label of good and bad go. Uh, pleasure is good. You know, we're, we enjoy lunch today. It was a good lunch. Yesterday's lunch was a bad lunch. Uh, you know, those are all value judgments. You can see that we're placing something on the experience. It's something, like Larry said yesterday, extra. And, we don't, and it creates suffering for us, needless suffering, really. If we're just able to be with it as it is, doesn't mean you have to be passive, doesn't mean you can't act, but there's an allowing quality, a spaciousness to the way things are. And then you can act from that spaciousness rather than reactivity.
Seeing life as a whole means paying attention to your activities. And one of the fruits of paying attention to your activities is not just that you get very good at doing the activity. Okay? You do get better at being in activities in being mindful, for sure. You get, a, get to be a better vacuumer and a better dishwasher. Uh, you develop new skills. Uh, so you do improve those skills. Um, but more importantly, activities then become a mirror. If we're awake in the activity, it's not just a body scrubbing a pant, this empty body scrubbing a pant. You know, there's more to washing dishes, scrub, being a pot washer than that. There's what your mind is doing in relationship to that activity. You know, when the mind is getting scattered, it's the scattered mind trying to wash dishes. And you can see when the mind is scattered, you're, you're able to function well. You know, we're very good at that. But there's not a lot of attention. There's no, uh, the relationship to it is, uh, there's a sense of separation quite often between ourselves and the activity when we're somewhere else. So we, we, we get to know what that separation feels like when we start paying attention to the mind in activities. Um, once again, it becomes a mirror. Uh, one significant thing that we begin to see, what we begin to develop insights on when we start paying attention to our activities is we begin to see that they mirror back what our conditioning is. What we bring into the experience. What, what our conditioning is in our experience. Getting to know our conditioning and how it brings us suffering. So much of the path is really about that. Getting to know yourself, watching your conditioned reactions, see how you respond in certain situations. When conditions arise, we react in certain ways. Getting to know yourself that way. It's very humbling, really. I mentioned that I was on staff in the late 70s and early 80s. Staff life was a little bit different uh, back then than, than it is now. Uh, now there are, there are a lot more yogis that come to the center. And, it, and the staff are, I'd say, considerably more busy. And we had a lot more time on our hands, and a lot more time, really, I would say, to get into trouble, actually. Uh, we were constantly creating all sorts of things that I'm sure this staff doesn't get involved in. Um, one summer, you keep them too busy. Uh, one summer, a friend of mine on staff you know, invited me to play tennis with them. And uh, I'd never played tennis growing up. I played a lot of sports, but I never played tennis. It wasn't my thing. And so I said, oh, okay. You know, it was the summer, and there was, it was pretty kind of not a lot going on here at the center, so there was a lot more time. So we went down to the local tennis court, and we started playing, and I, I, I really started enjoying it. We both started really having a lot of fun. We were going out there, and the tennis court was kind of out in the middle of the country, and uh, it was great to be in your body. You know, I used to work in the office, so I was sitting at a desk a lot. So just getting and moving about, uh, stimulating. It was really a lot of fun, a lot of joy. And then we, you know, we started getting into it and playing almost every day for a couple of weeks. And I felt like I was getting better at it, and we were getting more into it. And uh, we started inviting other people. People started inviting themselves, really, to, <laughs> with us. And so we started going, there was like three tennis courts down there, so people started going down you know, with us, and we started playing. And then someone had the brilliant idea, and I say that quite facetiously, uh, brilliant idea of, let's have a tournament. <laughs> let's have a tournament, and let's get really organized about this. In fact, you know, there was a trophy. Uh, 
there were little goodies that you'd get if you won. And so pretty soon you, the tennis started turning into kind of serious business is really what it is. It started having a serious tone to it. And people started, quote, winning and losing. And you'd find that even, you know, when you were working with these folks too, there was a certain kind of teasing that would happen, you know, with the losers and the winners would be gloating. And you could see a lot of pride coming out in people. Uh, and pretty soon, you know, quite frankly, it really lost a lot of its joy. You know, it just really became a really an unhappy experience. And before you know it, uh, there was only one person experiencing joy. And that was the person who won, uh, who got the trophy. And that was very, very impermanent because after a very short time, that person couldn't find anybody to play with anymore. Uh, we really lost interest very quickly. Uh, and it, you know, it became what was known as a fad at the center. And I, I really think it would have had, uh, it would have lasted longer if um, you know, we had kept that beginner's mind, if we kept the joy in it. We really took something away. And really what happened was is our conditioning kicked in. And quite frankly, uh, we were meditators too. And we were supposed to be paying attention. Uh, but we weren't necessarily paying attention to playing tennis and what was coming up around that. But what was coming up was all these competitive conditioning and all this notion of wanting approval or wanting attention or wanting to win or, or, and all of that kind of stuff, not wanting to lose and being humiliated and all sorts of stuff that happens sometimes if you're very competitive. And so in some ways, we really killed tennis for us. We killed that joy. And, and, and really, if we had been a little bit more mindful of what we were turning it into, I think most of us would have agreed right away, let's drop this tournament idea. It's not a good one. Let's just go out and have fun. Okay, just enjoy it. Get into the moment. Just enjoy the moment for what it was. Because that's what attracted people to it in the first place. They could see how much fun we were having, how much joy there was. Instead, of course, our conditioning kicked in. Surprisingly, we didn't really learn that much right away from that experience because in the winter, it became ping pong. <laughs> and once again, there was a ping pong tournament. <laughs> and we, even, we sucked in even more people into this. And pretty soon, the entire staff was involved in this tournament. And it was very competitive. And people who couldn't play very well were like, you know, they were so upset with the way people would win. And, all sorts of stuff was going on, and, and uh, you know, sometimes you learn very slowly um, not to add, you know, not to add suffering to the pot. Certainly, though, what came out of that for me, and what comes out, uh, what I, uh, what I, what I see um, that one learns, and to me, it's a freedom uh, that one discovers on this path. Is um, one discovers the path, you know. One discovers uh, humility on this path. Sometimes, you know, we get so ambitious about what we're trying to achieve. You know, the Buddha talked a lot about the suffering of becoming. One thing I will guarantee, that you will never become a good meditator. You will never become a good meditator. Because what you might become is a good person, a kind person, and you might progress on the path, hopefully you will. But as you do, you'll drop the meditator. You will drop the meditator 
and they'll just be living and being awake. And that's what meditation is. And so you can drop this notion. And people who've been practicing a while gradually do. They drop, drop this whole idea of, of getting good at it. This whole notion of achieving or striving. It's a tremendous burden to let go of. It's a real freedom. That you can't drop it right away necessarily. Um, but you want to be mindful when you find that you're pushing yourself. Or when that ambition or that striving uh, influences or colors your effort. Uh, be mindful of it. You know, just notice when you feel like you're striving or trying to achieve. And notice the flip side, the disappointment. You know, with ambition, inevitably comes disappointment. You don't have to be disappointed if we learn how just to meet the present moment really on its own terms, as it is. Mindfulness allows us to let go of our conditioning. If it didn't, if the path didn't do that, to me it would not be particularly practical. In fact, I, I would think it would not be worth really practicing at all if it didn't allow us to let go of our conditioning. In other words, if we were stuck in our conditioning, stuck in repeating the same mistakes, stuck in reacting the same way, stuck in all the habits that we've cultivated over our lifetime. You know, if that's all there was, and you know, the practice didn't help let us let that go, it really wouldn't lead to liberation. Because liberation is this process of letting go of the habits, letting go of the conditioning, and learning how to respond spontaneously, you know, open, you know, with an open heart, you know, just connecting without that conditioning, without all that baggage. One freedom, one area of freedom that we learn, that we let go of, is, is this whole clinging to a self-image. You know, sometimes in this culture we, we think, well, a positive self-image is better than a negative self-image. And maybe. That's kind of true. I'm not sure. I don't think so, though. I think positive self-image, which very few people actually have, I don't encounter too many anyway, um, it can get you in as much trouble as negative self-image, really. Uh, you end up often harming other people. Can be people with really, really positive self-images, like they think they're really a wonderful person. Um, you know, they cause trouble sometimes for other people. So letting go of self-image. Once again, when we begin to relate to the present, when we relate to the now, we're not relating through the lens of an image about who we are. We can begin to let go of that. Self-image is simply a legacy of the past. You know, all of us, as we grow up and as we get, grow older, what the, the tendency, of course, is to accumulate ideas. And we accumulate ideas and knowledge about who we are. We accumulate ideas and knowledge about what's possible for us. And so out of that, we cultivate uh, a self-image, an idea about who we are. Practice allows us to begin to let that go. You know, in, in many ways, practice is about forgetting yourself. 
You know, it's that freedom of just letting go of this constant self-referencing that's going on. But instead, just being with the experience, without that reference of this is me observing this, this is me in this experience. Really letting go of that whole idea and simply being with experience as it unfolds. We begin to overcome that feeling of separation from our experience. There's a tremendous amount of dissatisfaction, a feeling of unsatisfaction that comes out of not being present. Not being present. Living life habitually and mechanically is not worth living. I mean, it, life, it, it, it's not rich enough. You know, we're just going through the motions. And we don't want to do that. You know, we don't want to just go through life, you know, hoping that the next moment is going to be better. You know, we, want to, uh, we want more power than that. We want more freedom than that. And so, finally, the practice comes down to this. The practice comes down to simply paying attention to whatever you're doing. Over and over again, when you forget to pay attention, come back and pay attention. That's the practice. And in that process of paying attention, what happens in a very natural way is that we begin to live life not habitually anymore. We begin to let go of that habit, that power of the habit, that limitation of habit. We begin to connect to what we're doing. We begin to connect to who we are in a very direct way. So that there's now energy. You know, there's energy, there's movement, there's possibility uh, in whatever we're doing. Now, life as a whole, it's equal. Things are equal. It's not like this experience is better than that experience. This sitting is better than that sitting. It feels that way because of our judgments about it. But when we begin to let go of those judgments, we begin to let go of those uh, we begin to let go of all those ideas about the shoulds and shouldn'ts, and we simply learn how to relax. Because so much of the path is learning how to relax the body, but learning how to relax the mind. And the mind begins to deeply relax when we learn how to be with the experience just as it is. It doesn't have to be better than what it is. Finally, this process of awakening or being awake. It's not all about ourselves. You know, it's not just about our own awakening. It's not just about our own liberation, our own freedom. When we learn to be more present and more connected and more awake, we bring that presence, we bring that wakefulness into the world that we live. We bring that presence into the relationships that we have. You know, whether they're close, intimate relationships, whether they're casual relationships, cashiers, people you cross in the street, whatever, whatever. We bring that ability to be present, awake, sensitive, connected into that experience. And we're really giving people something, 
something very substantial. In, in many ways, what we're giving them is our love. Because by being present, that's what we're doing. We're learning to love the moment. We're learning to open our hearts to the moment. And being present in relationship is really probably the kindest thing that you can do. And it's a rare commodity these days. You know, so often, you know, people are so stressed out, busy and worried and anxious, and uh, people have agendas, you know, taking them out of the present. They've got strategies and plans. And so often that what that does is people aren't present with each other. And so there's a sense of disconnect. There's a sense of disconnect. And we feel it. And, it's not, and all of us know that. We've all been in conversations. We've all been in relationships where the person isn't being very attentive. And really, it's not really a relationship when it's like that. You know, there's this feeling of separation. It's very unsatisfying. Learning how to be a resource to others really requires us to learn how to be awake. Okay, so let's, let's sit for a minute. Thank you, and please continue the practice.